should we expect from this Palestinian advisory opinion, a, a thing that's going to force Israel to sort of welcome a two-state solution, or we're all going to have to sort of stop eating meat and immediately stop driving after the climate change advisory opinion comes out? Well, obviously, no. Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Hello, Janet. Hello, Stephanie. Well, hello, Molly. We seem to be doing this the wrong way around. Yeah, I've, um, I've sort of taken over your podcast. So what exactly are we doing? Well, I got very interested in the three pending advisory opinions at the International Court of Justice, and I wanted to write a feature about them for my employer, Courthouse News Service. And in the process of pitching that, I thought it would be, I don't know, kind of fun to do like an audio version. And I sort of bullied Steph into letting me do this for asymmetrical haircuts. Yeah, this is true. By the time I heard all about this plan, it was too late. So Molly, you talked to a bunch of people, uh, Solveig Henry or Henri, a legal officer at the ICJ. You also talked to assistant professor of law at Trinity College, Dublin, and friend of the pod, Mike Becker. You spoke to Margarita Weberinge-Singh, an associate professor of international law at the University of Amsterdam, and also a friend of the pod. You spoke to Keith Ewing, professor of public law at King's College, London. And you spoke to Palestinian foreign affairs minister, Riyad al-Maliki. Yeah, there are three pending advisory opinions. This is a record-breaking number for the court. Two have come from the United Nations General Assembly. One of those is on Palestine, one is on climate change. The third was made by the International Labor Organization. That's the UN agency responsible for setting labor standards. That one has asked the judges about the right to strike. I started first by talking to Mike Becker. He specializes in international courts and tribunals, and he also used to work at the ICJ. I sort of asked him what exactly an advisory opinion is. Okay, so an advisory opinion is uh, a statement by an international court that sets forth a position on a legal question that's been put to it. Uh, At the ICJ in particular, we usually focus on the court's contentious function. So that's deciding disputes between states. But it also has this second function, which is to render advisory opinions that have been put to it. Uh, And we've seen more and more activity in this area over the last uh, few years with three pending advisory opinion requests right now. I mean, that's unprecedented. Uh, Normally, we might see one or two advisory opinion requests at the ICJ per decade. And so to have three taking place at the same time is really something. Where does this sort of come from? I mean, what's the kind of history here? Was there a reason that people were sort of interested in kind of allowing this to be a thing that could be asked of courts as opposed to just sort of letting parties kind of duke it out on their own? That's a really good question uh, because the advisory opinion function goes back to the ICJ's predecessor. So the permanent court of international justice, the court was this, that was set up alongside the League of Nations in the 1920s also had an advisory function. And in fact, the PCIJ was extremely active in terms of issuing advisory opinions in its relatively brief lifetime of a a couple of decades um, before it was uh, shut down and then replaced by the ICJ when the um, UN was uh, established. In its lifetime, if I'm remembering correctly, it issued around 20, I think 27 advisory opinions and decided around 28 maybe contentious cases. I I might be off by one or two on the figures, but you know, roughly they were just as active in terms of issuing advisory opinions as deciding cases. And I think we can speculate about why that might have been. Remember that the PCIJ was really the first global international court. And at that time, states remained 
as some states remain uh, today, very skeptical or very cautious about um, being willing to consent to third-party adjudication in this way. And so one theory might be that, well, having this parallel advisory opinion um, procedure was seen as a less risky or a more comfortable way for states to see how is this new international court going to go about doing its work, addressing legal questions, can we trust the international court? Um, so that might be one explanation for why when the PCIJ was set up in the first place, this idea of advisory opinions was attractive. Uh, because a really important point that I haven't mentioned so far is that the big difference between advisory opinions and a judgment in a case between states is that advisory opinions are non-binding. They are advisory, uh, whereas a judgment by the ICJ uh, is formally legally binding. Yeah, this came up a lot uh, both uh, before the Israel-South Africa genocide case and uh, afterwards as we've just had these provisional measures, which are legally binding, but the court has no actual enforcement apparatus. So we have this whole debate about whether a decision really matters or not because of the lack of enforcement. So if an advisory opinion also isn't legally binding, does it matter even less? Yeah, I put that question to Solvage Henry, who spoke to me at the ICJ in this tiny little museum space that they have. Did you guys know that there was a tiny little museum in the basement of the ICJ? No, what I did know is that they have the original Nuremberg audio recordings there, which is like wacky because it has very little to do with the ICJ itself. Well, I, I just went to the visitor center last week with the school trip of my son's school. Not with my son because he's already too bored to know more about genocide and was like, mom, please don't bore the other kids with genocide. But I went to the visitor center and, they, and the visitor center explained that after the Nuremberg trials, all the archives went to the peace palace because that's like the one symbol of international peace. But now I know they're kept in the basement. Yeah, there's like a whole, they have like robes and documents. It's actually like quite nice, to be honest. Um, you can hear Henry B. sort of very careful about the phrasing that she uses in discussing this issue of being legally binding. Um, I think it's kind of a, I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but like a difficult subject for people to, to kind of approach. You know, there is this discussion that comes up a lot with the ICJ, both in contentious cases, but also with advisory opinions about um, the legal applicability of them and whether or not the court has any enforcement mechanism. Advisory opinions are officially sort of not legally binding, but there are a lot of discussions amongst sort of academics and legal experts as to like what exactly it means when the court says you should do this or you should do that in an advisory opinion. Um, can you say a little bit about that? What kind of is the the relevancy of these if they are not sort of legally binding and if there is no enforcement mechanism? Yes, so yes, the, uh, advisory opinions are just advice. So they are not per se legally binding, but in fact, since it comes from the court, they carry a lot of political weight. And you cannot really say, uh, well, the court said that I cannot do that, but I do it anyway. So uh, yes, from a very technical point of view, uh, it's not legally binding. We do not have any in mechanism. There's no ICJ police, right? There's no yeah. ICJ police or prison or anything, <laughs> so we cannot enforce the decisions uh, of the court. And advisory opinions, of course, were not designed to be legally binding, but they carry such a weight because they come from the International Court of Justice. We have 15 judges who are very respected. And so uh, 
still uh, advisory opinions will show the way uh, for certain behavior and uh, should be respected and are most of the time well uh, respected or at least the entity asking for the advisory opinion will do its best to make sure that it is respected and if we take for example the 2004 Palestine, uh, uh, well, uh, advisory opinion with regard to the construction of the wall. Well, the General Assembly adopted several resolutions asking Israel to comply by the um, decision, mm -hmm. well, by the opinion of the court, and to, so to stop constructing, uh, building the wall, etc. Although that didn't stop them from from Although doing it anyway. Them, yes, yeah, that's for sure. But uh, we see that the entity requesting the advisory opinion then tries to enforce it itself and it's also for the other states to make sure that the uh, advisory opinion will be respected uh, by the international community or some specific uh, states depending on well, who made the request. Yeah, it really is interesting that she's um, picked uh, the wall opinion, which is one I think that made a lot of headlines at, at the time. But now that we look back on, we kind of wonder really what effect it had. Um, but can you tell us a little more about how these opinions work exactly, what the what the process is? Yeah, you're starting to sound a little bit like a uh, procedure goblin, Stephanie. Um, so I also posed this question to Henry, and she gave some really interesting, at least interesting for nerds like us, kind of behind the scenes looks at uh, kind of how this process works. And when you get these questions, either from the General Assembly or from an organization, um, what what is the kind of behind-the-scenes work that, that happens here at the court? Well, first of all, we receive the question from the Secretary General of the entity. Uh, Do they just, like, send it by email? Like, what's the process for this? Oh, yes, it was sent by email, <laughs> but two years ago it was sent by post. So we received uh, the request on paper. Then we transmit uh, the request to the interested states, and um, uh, the court decides, what well, looks at the request, and then decides uh, which entities can uh, take part in the advisory proceedings because the court needs some information to um, give its advisory opinion. So if we have a request from the General Assembly of the United Nations, for example, well, the court will decide that the member states of the United Nations are invited to provide information if they want, uh, want to. And uh, sometimes it looks at a broader uh, what scope, and it also invites certain international organizations. So these entities can submit written statements and comments. So there is most of the time a written phase of the case where states, international organizations, so invited, submit their views on paper. And if you take the, um, the advisory opinion regarding uh, Palestine, we received 57 um, texts from states and international organizations, then if the procedure is not too urgent, they can have a second round of written pleading. So we call them written comments. Uh, with uh, regard to Palestine, we received 50. Then the court decides if it wants or not to hold hearings. So it will, uh, with regard to the Palestine advisory opinion, have hearings in February 2024. And then we um, wait for all the states and organizations to say whether they want to come to the hearings or not. So then we have these oral proceedings 
And then if we go back behind the scenes, <laughs> we disappear, the court disappears after the hearings and starts what we call the deliberation process. And for advisory opinions, in fact, it's like for contentious, for contentious cases. Uh, in fact, you have the president of the court uh, who prepares a list of issues. Then the judges meet, they discuss the case, and you have the broad um, opinion, the majority of the court, um, the view of the majority of the court that comes out. And then they elect uh, a certain limiting number of judges to be part of what we call the drafting committee. So you have the president and two judges being part of the drafting committee. So they know what the court wants to say, and then they have to draft. And then the legal department helps. Mm -hmm. So they prepare a draft text, and then they send it to their colleagues. The court meets again, discusses the text, uh, they amend the text. So there are several, there are, we have two readings, in fact. Then the court adopts the decision, but in order to adopt the decisions, all the judges have to agree on the paragraphs, etc., uh, on the text. And then, once the decision is being adopted, well, the court has a special sitting where the president reads out the decision to the public. Uh, yeah, I always love the uh, the fancy language that you get at the ICJ, but it does all sound absolutely straightforward, easy peasy. Um, but what happens when the judges can't actually agree? Yeah, I also asked her this. Um, I was really hoping for some like juicy gossip about doors banging and tables being slammed on and stuff. If the judges cannot agree, there is no decision because uh, it needs to be uh, there needs to be a vote at the end on the different paragraphs of the decision. So. If you need a vote, you need a majority of judges. So if there is no majority, they have to discuss up until they come to a majority. Or if it's a close um, vote, then the president can cast his or her vote on one side or the other to have a majority. But in fact, the deliberations are very interesting because sometimes you see that there is no clear majority. So the judges try to find a formulation that will um, be accepted by um, the largest number of them. So, yeah. yes. Does it get contentious during the deliberations? I mean, do you have situations where they're, I don't know, storming out of the room, these sorts the of things? The, <laughs> the judges are... I mean, would you tell me if they were storming out of the room? Yes, yes, no, the judges are really... Well, they, some of them can be very firm in their uh, thoughts and uh, attitudes, but uh, they are, well, used to diplomacy, so they always find a way to convince their colleagues. Sometimes it's very interesting to see, um, well... The reasoning behind and to see how they uh, really do everything they can to try and convince their colleagues to come to their position and to share their position. But uh, sometimes, yes, it can be uh, a bit tense. It's kind of hard to imagine how tense would go with all the kind of octogenarian uh, judges at this court. I'm imagining something akin to trying to plan a day out at the pensioner's home uh, with some... <laughs> I really hope the judges aren't listening to this podcast. <laughs> with some scheming, it's with the one guy who wants to go to the zoo, but the other one who really wants to go bowling, and that they then strategize beforehand about how to get the most people on on board for that. Um, you know, if you have to sign off 
every one to every paragraph. That's just insane. That reminds me of like European Union and those treaty talks that go on to five at night. Well, I can't imagine that that goes on at the court, but who knows? Maybe we should cycle by at uh, four in the morning and see if the light's still burning and trying to figure out what's going on. They're still burning the midnight oil. So we have now three pending cases uh, for advisory opinions. What are they? So I think it's easiest um, to start with the climate change one, in part because there has already been an asymmetrical haircuts episode about that. I asked Veverinka Singh, who is Vanuatu's lead counsel in the case, about how the South Pacific nation got to The Hague. Essentially, a group of students, law students from the University of the South Pacific, who ultimately convinced the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, Ralph Egan Vanu, that Vanuatu should go to the ICJ, bringing the world's biggest pro- uh, problem before the world's highest courts. And what was then the process? Because, of course, you can't just request an advisory opinion. Yeah, other options were also considered, of course, going through specialized agencies, etc. But the UNGA clearly was the golden option and also the most difficult one. And so, yeah, we devised a strategy of getting the votes in the UNGA based on a, a, a model of concentric circles. So starting with states most closely aligned with Vanuatu's interests and perhaps most easily persuaded, although it still took a couple of months to get even get those friends and neighbors on board. So those were the Pacific, the other Pacific island states, and then expanding outwards towards other states and then other SIDs and other climate vulnerable states and then outwards towards you know, progressive states and then the outer circle where those, where those whose votes were essentially not strictly needed to get a majority. Approximately how long did that take from when you all decided to try to pursue the UNGA option until the actual vote happened? It probably took until 2018, early 2019, until the decision was made firmly to go down this this path. It was not an easy decision because, of course, it was clear that what was needed to um, to be victorious in this, and it was also something Vanuatu had never tried before. 2018-2019, this is to go ahead. First diplomatic events were also organized in 2019 in the margins of the UN Climate Action Summit in New York. Yeah, there were a couple of events, including, of course, the pandemic that slowed things down. And ultimately, it was 2021 when Vanuatu really scaled up. And then 29 March 2023, adoption of the resolution. Yeah, but it's not just about getting something through the General Assembly. You also have to have an actual something that you want to put a question for the General Assembly to adopt. Yeah, just getting to the point where they had a question was also a lot of negotiations. The specific questions that you guys asked the judges is very important. Can you say a little bit about what the process was like to try to pick um, what exactly the question was that was going to be posed? For Vanuatu, it was it was important that the the legal question spoke to mitigation and loss and damage, and so we um, worked with a group of international lawyers on the question. We first we each formulated a question, and then we put our drafts together, and we yeah we worked just until we had a perfect what we thought was a perfect draft. But we also knew that the draft needed to go through the UNGA. 
And so, of course, we had already already taken that into account in drafting it the way we did, but still we also um, drafted in such a way that we knew there was space for compromise. And the question was incredibly intensely negotiated. Every word, commas even, were negotiated. But we think it came out pretty well. There are, um, yeah, a lot of fingerprints on it. But what we consider to be the core of the question has been preserved. Was it was it difficult? Were there's a lot of like heated, uh, I don't know, people kind of being at odds with each other? Or was it really more of a like, I don't know, sort of a more of a collaborative um, kind of effort? It was hardcore negotiation <laughs> with, <laughs> with all that that entails. And here's what they ultimately came up with. What are the obligations of states under international law to ensure the protection of the climate system and other parts of the environment from anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases for states and for present and future generations? What are the legal consequences under these obligations for states where they, by their acts and omissions, have caused significant harm to the climate system and other parts of the environment with respect to... 1. States, including in particular small island developing states, which due to their geographical circumstances and level of development are injured or specifically affected by or are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change. 2. Peoples and individuals of the present and future generations affected by the adverse effects of climate change. So that was our lovely assistant producer, Susanna Pogg, voicing that question for us. Um, it seems a bit convoluted. The ILO question is a bit more straightforward, right? Yeah, the uh, the ILO question is kind of very Dutch and to the point. Um, the International Labour Organization itself did not want to speak with us, um, but I found an employment law expert and lawyer, Keith Ewing, who talked me through sort of what's at stake for the right to strike. I presume everybody knows what the International Labour Organization does. It's a UN agency. Uh, which was founded in 1919 to promote um, labor standards uh, throughout the world. Founded in 1919, though the UN, of course, was not founded until after the Second World War. The ILO was formed after the First World War, and I think is the oldest, certainly one of the oldest international organizations still in force or still operating. Uh, the ILO is unique in the sense that it's a tripartite organization in the sense that it's made up of uh, representatives of uh, governments, uh, labor and uh, business uh, organizations. Uh, it is governed by a constitution, which was uh, made in 1919, uh, still applies. Its core values were reaffirmed in a very important document towards the end of the Second World War called the Declaration of uh, Philadelphia. What the ILO does is that it uh, it makes by convention treaties in the sense that these ILO conventions are treaties in international law once they are ratified by a sufficient number of member states. Now, on the question of uh, freedom of association, which is what we are concerned with, the principle is set out in the Constitution. It is set out in the Declaration of Philadelphia, but it's also the subject of several conventions. Uh, which are treaties, as I say, uh, the most important of which is ILO Convention Number 87. And there are currently about 190 ILO conventions going back to uh, 1919. But the one we're concerned with principally is ILO Convention 87 on uh, freedom of association and the right to, to organise. 
Well, before we go any further, Molly, I need to check. Did you actually know what the ILO was before you started? I did not. I mean, you could sort of infer from context clues what the International Labour Organization might do. Yeah, I mean, I understand that um, he refers quite a lot there to these different conventions, things like the right to assembly. But, you know, that's all really broad. What exactly is being asked of the court? It's actually really, um, it's quite clear. Is the right to strike of workers and their organisations protected under the freedom of association and protection of the right to organise convention of 1948? So thanks, Susanna, again. But now the question is, why are we having this now? And also, why didn't the ILO want to talk about the question that they asked the court? Yeah, I was also surprised by this. I was very confused when they rejected um, my request for an interview and continued to reject me when I was being persistent about it. So of course, I had to go talk to a bunch of other people about what was going on over there. And it seems like basically this comes down to kind of like an internal fight at the organization. Everyone says that this sort of debate about the right to strike has been going on for years within the ILO. um, And it's like finally come to a head. Ewing did say something kind of interesting about how the ILO's increased relevancy kind of became a factor in putting this question forward. So in 2008, what the European Court of Human Rights did in a very, very famous decision from Turkey said, well, look, uh, we're going to we're going to reject all. We're going to overturn, reverse all our earlier case law, which says that we're going to which mandated a very narrow interpretation of Article 11. But what the court said in 2008, now this is going to change. The major, one of the biggest cases of any court on labor rights for about 100 years. And what the court said was, no, no, this is going to change. You know, we don't, we don't often reverse our previous decisions, but we're going to do it now. And this was a grand chamber decision of 15 judges. It was very, very unusual. And what they said is that we've got to, you know, basically start with a clean slate on freedom association. And in determining what Article 11 means, we've got to try to be consistent with the law and practice of other international agencies, including the ILO. What they said is that in determining Article 11 means, we've got to have a look at ILO conventions, and that will help to inform us about the scope and contents of Article 11 of the European Convention. The European Convention of Human Rights has a much more direct effect on national law. Our domestic courts have to take into have to apply convention rights they've got to take into account the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. So what you see here is this ILO jurisprudence seeping indirectly. I mean it's it's seeping out of Geneva. It's seeping into Strasbourg. But Molly, yet again, you're trying to take us away from The Hague and take us over to to Strasbourg? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, sort of have this bugaboo about the fact that nobody pays attention to the European Court of Human Rights. And it's really important. What Ewing is referring to with Article 11 is the guarantee of freedom of assembly and association under the European Convention of Human Rights. That's the convention that underpins the Strasbourg Court. In 2008, there was a landmark case in Denmir and Bakara versus Turkey, which affirmed the fundamental right of workers to engage in collective bargaining and to take collective action, aka strike. So, but if we go back, um, if we drag you out of Strasbourg and go back to the discussion about impact, this advisory opinion seems like it has maybe a little more teeth than the other ones that that this would actually go on to the to really matter in the European courts. Yeah, Ewing um, talks a little bit about kind of how this advisory opinion is definitely would definitely have some you know real impact kind of on on the ground, both in courts and in a lot of like uh, trade agreements. Well, why does it matter? Well, it means um, 
Oh, several things, I guess. One is that um, it will give a lot of confidence to, 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 to Labour. I mean, that would be the first thing. So the moral victory, I think, would be as great as the substantive victory. But the first thing is that it would uh, affect the dynamics of the ILO. In the sense, in the sense that the employers would now be on the defensive, uh, it would be quite clear to the employers that they cannot or should not be operating in a way which uh, denies or is based on the denial of the existence of the right to strike. In a sense, and it would empower the ILO agencies. Yeah. Secondly, uh, it would remove any doubts from uh, international and national courts about the uh, extent to which the right to strike is protected as a matter of international law, that would be profoundly important to get an ICJ ruling that the right to strike is clearly protected by international law, by a process to which uh, so many countries uh, uh, subscribe to. That would be huge, actually, just the confidence boost that that would give to lawyers going in before some of these uh, courts. Thirdly, I think it would have a huge, it would have a very, it would have a huge impact on free trade agreements because it would make uh, every country that signs up to these agreements must respect the ILO standards. We now know, well, I think we do know already, but it would reinforce the reality that the right to strike is protected. And you've got to do something about it. And it would enable then unions to bring complaints or reinforce the determination of unions to bring complaints. So let's um, uh, talk about the actual peg for this podcast, which is coming up next week with the Palestine advisory opinion. Yeah, the poor ICJ took such flack for scheduling hearings in the advisory opinion because it seemed like it was in response to the October 7th attacks, when in reality, the General Assembly had put forward the request in 2022. Here is what this opinion asks. What are the legal consequences arising from the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination, from its prolonged occupation, settlement and annexation of the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, including measures aimed at altering the demographic composition, character and status of the holy city of Jerusalem, and from its adoption of related discriminatory legislation and measures? How do the policies and practices of Israel referred to in paragraph 18a above affect the legal status of the occupation? And what are the legal consequences that arise for all states and the United Nations from this status? And again, thanks, Susanna. And again, I have to say, this is a much less direct question uh, than the ILO one. Yeah, there is, there's a lot more happening here. There's a lot more happening even than with the climate change one. Um, Steph, maybe you could, uh, Stephopedia, a back history in case listeners kind of aren't up to date on this. Okay, I'm uh, getting ready to get cancelled here from whatever side, uh, whatever I say, but... Just all of the sides. It's going to get cancelled by everybody. Essentially, at the end of the 1948 war, a demarcation line sometimes called the Green Line, was created, which separated Arab-controlled territory, i.e. the Jordanian-annexed West Bank and the Egyptian-occupied Gaza Strip from Israel. In 1967, military hostilities broke out between Israel and a coalition of Arab states, primarily Egypt, Syria and Jordan. And at the end of that conflict, sometimes called the Six-Day War or also known as the June War, Israel had seized Syria's Golan Heights, the Jordanian-annexed West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and Egypt's Sinai peninsula as well as the Egyptian occupied Gaza Strip. 
Now, in 1982, Israel withdrew all its forces and its settlers from the Sinai region. Gaza and the West Bank are considered a single occupied entity by the United Nations. So what the UN General Assembly said in this question is is that there's an ongoing occupation that's illegal, and it asked the court, what is Israel's legal obligation here? Why don't we just start off with the the thing we need to compare it to, to start with, which is this 2004 also advisory opinion known as the wall opinion, which you've, or we've said earlier in the podcast, Israel's basically ignored. Yeah, that was um, was the sort of previous round 20 years ago. We did an advisory opinion by we, I mean, the International Court of Justice. Uh, This, I was in high school. So, but Steph, Steph was there. So maybe you can, uh, you can tell us about those hearings. What was that experience like? Yeah, I I can't believe it's already 20 years ago. Absolutely, it was. And I was there and it was my first, I guess, real encounter with a case at the ICJ that seemed to have an immediate kind of effect and was also related to the Israel-Palestine conflict or the Israel-Palestine question, which basically ramps up interest by a thousand. And so I remember being kind of overwhelmed by all the attention all of a sudden for this peace palace thing that nobody nobody ever came to except for this. I remember I was working for AFP at the time, being kind of lobbied by both the Palestinian and the Israeli side, having tons and tons of press conferences with people from all sides, uh, and really being like, whoa, there's so much going on around this case. And it has such, uh, everybody's looking at this, and I'm in the middle of it. And uh, I, I hadn't quite had that before in, in that sense, especially about, uh, you know, I've had that before with Dutch news, but then I am Dutch, so I have an idea of the conflict and the and and the or I have an idea of the society and how it works. And this was the first real experience with a huge case uh, from a region that you know I took away one like some Middle Eastern classes in in college, and so I knew a little bit, but none of the nitty gritty of this. And I really had to learn a lot in a very very short period. But at the end of the day, Steph, I mean, you know, Israel again very minimally listened to what the court had to say and basically ignored for, you know, what the court's ruling. The ruling in that court um, was, I think, that the 1967 line was the one that you should, uh, that should be considered the border and that the, the land beyond that was occupied by Israel and that it did very notably say that Israeli settlements uh, in that area beyond the line were illegal. That opinion was just dismissed by Israel as being done by a politically motivated court and and they wouldn't have to listen to it. As Solveig Henry said before, the UN did then pass some resolutions and had a stance on this that they didn't have before because that before you could still make it kind of well we don't know what the situation is but once the ICJ has spoken it seems that more generally countries and also news organizations felt much more secure that yes we could call this occupied territories this is an occupation. Yeah so all that kind of made me wonder like why bother with this advisory opinion and sort of like what is the point of asking the court to weigh in when historically Israel has not agreed to what the court says it should be doing. So I posed that question to the Palestinian Foreign Affairs Minister, Riyad al-Maliki, in October. He was visiting the Netherlands to meet with the International Criminal Court after the October 7th attacks. There was a previous advisory opinion from the ICJ about the wall and the West Bank that Israel has ignored completely. Do you feel optimistic? Do the Palestinian people feel optimistic that international justice has something to offer them? 
what other choice do we have? You know, we have to stick to what's really available and to strengthen what we have and to, cre to create and to build consensus, you know, about it. That's essential. That's important. So not only on Palestine, but altogether on uh, advisory opinions, let's uh, pin you against the wall, Molly, and say, do you think they actually matter? I mean, I would like to give my little spiel about why I think that this stuff matters. I sort of perfected during the ICJ nonsense, you know, last month. Go for it. So, I mean, I haven't been around this field as long as you two have. I've only been working for CNS since 2019, and I was very skeptical, I think, at first about how much the stuff mattered. I think that that's a pretty common occurrence when you kind of come into this field, that it doesn't seem very clearly like how, how, how relevant it actually is. But it sort of seems to me that international justice is like fiat money. Like it matters because we all believe that it matters. Like it's a real thing because we believe it's a real thing. It definitely seemed to matter to the thousands of people watching the South Africa Israel case. I mean, people in South Africa were throwing like ICJ viewing parties like it was a football match. I mean, I have never been as busy as I have um, during the genocide hearings. My phone did not stop ringing. Friends and colleagues and staff at some point had to like stage an intervention to tell me I couldn't be doing everything that I was being asked to do. And I think that that shows that people think that this this stuff really, really matters. Um, yeah, I think we'll see just how much uh, this matters um, when the hearings start in, in a couple of days uh, as you're hearing this podcast. I, I wonder if the if the big kind of genocide case has taken some of the attention away from this. I was expecting this to be the big Israel-Palestine uh, Israel thing at the ICJ. Yeah, I wonder if it's not the other way around, because I feel like the South Africa case really put the ICJ just like on the map in a way that I had, I had never seen before. And then when we had these two intervening decisions, these Russia-Ukraine cases, there was suddenly so much more interest in this stuff than there was in those cases, I mean, earlier, particularly the, the, the the case that dates from 2017 that was sort of like sort of not about the invasion and you saw i mean those rulings were super technical and super complicated everybody's really struggling with this and so i think it just sort of goes to show that like yeah there is a lot of media interest and most of that media interest is coming from you know media organizations who don't sort of regularly cover the court in this ways and so i think it makes it me feel like the work that we're doing is even more important well, I wish you both a very uh, full press room and uh, lots of interest in, in what you're up to. Steph, what's the basic uh, schedule to expect from the 19th? This is Molly popping back in. At the time of recording, we didn't have the scheduling order for the advisory opinion, but we do have it now. Uh, hearings will start on Monday, February 19th. Um, there will be a bit of an introduction, and then Palestine will have a three-hour block to speak. Israel is not participating in the oral proceedings. They did file written submissions. And then for the subsequent five days, so that's Tuesday through Monday, you will hear from a whole bunch of countries. The court will hear from a whole bunch of countries, um, ranging from the United States States, to Japan, to Pakistan, um, the United Kingdom. There are some interesting ones like Iran and China. The Russian Federation will also be participating, as well as a few organizations, including the League of Arab States and the African Union. And then when do we expect to actually get a uh, uh, judges having banged their heads together or whatever it is that they do in their, uh, in their room uh, out for, from the court? I think that's months away. I don't recall exactly when it was for for Chagos, the last advisory opinion we had, I think it was at least six months. I think with the docket of the court being as busy as it is and all the kind of emergency measures hearings we've been seeing that it might be a little longer 
this time, but it's it's at least a couple of months out. Molly, I was really delighted to have you suggest doing this. Anybody who wants to come on the podcast and tell us in detail exactly how uh, some aspect of international law really works, and especially somebody who can actually do some of the interviews and and find out the details with with us is is really great. So you're always welcome. I want to thank you guys for letting me bully my way in and doing a takeover. I had a lot of fun doing this, although Janet may be over my slightly panicked phone calls that she had gotten from me. If you don't mind, why can we also ask you our regular asymmetrical haircuts questions? The first one of which is, is there something that you wish that you'd stuck into the podcast that you didn't get quite space uh, to put in there? Is there something you wish that you'd had time to say? Yeah, I think my sort of biggest regret here is that we had tried really hard to get somebody from the Palestinian legal team who will be presenting their arguments at the ICJ in the advisory opinion. And we just could not make that happen. And I think that would have been really um, nice and insightful for the so I think that that's probably my biggest regret here. Uh, one of my favorite asymmetrical haircuts question is, do you have a, a favorite court case that you like to talk about? I know you sometimes tell me of some wild things that you have to follow. So I'm really looking forward to a good court case here. I have been waiting to be asked this question for so long. So my favorite court case to talk about, which is not very legally interesting, but the, just the story is unhinged, is the like multiple cases that went through the Luxembourg court involving the former EU commissioner for health, John Dolly. He was from Malta and he got caught up in this like bribery scandal over Swedish smokeless tobacco. It seemed like this Swedish smokeless tobacco company was going to attempt to bribe him into making sure that snuff continued to be legal in Sweden. It was a contingent upon Sweden's negotiations to ascend to the EU that they be allowed to continue to have snuff. The intermediary they used was a former circus performer. That was like also a fun fact. But then he got busted basically um, in a tapped phone call, which it turns out is like not totally clear if that's like legal in Belgium. And so like then there was this whole separate proceedings in Belgium about this. But ultimately he sued the commission, I think, at the court of justice about like his improper firing. And this guy just seems to like filing complaints. So I think I covered four or five decisions about this one guy and his like deranged bribery case. It sounds like a great case. All I can imagine, Molly, for our final, final question is that you'll come up with something equally unhinged and and hilarious that you've either been reading or listening to or watching in recent weeks. So just tell us what's on Molly's uh, pile at the moment. I do. I actually do have something that's like equally unhinged. I've been on a real um, like fiction podcast kick. I think my last recommendation on here was this podcast Midnight Burger, but I've been listening to a new podcast. Um, it's not it's not new, but new to me called Midst. And it's kind of a very bizarre space Western with like weird narration. And it's very strange and very interesting. And it was what has been keeping me sane this week because on Monday, my dishwasher exploded and like flooded my whole house. And I had to spend a lot of time cleaning that up. And this is what I was listening to while I did that, which sort of kept me from completely losing my mind. Thank you so much, Molly, for uh, guiding us through advisory opinions, uh, Molly style. And basically doing our job for us, uh, to interviewing people, writing a script. Great. Yeah. Did all the editing. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle, basically. So, no, it's been fun. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for uh, walking us through all this and putting in the time and the effort. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com.
and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.